He was a very rich man. And as he was a young man, I think we can be fairly sure, for I don't think there were any national lotteries in the first century, that his wealth was inherited. But any thinking person, and he was certainly that, knew that there were more valuable things than wealth which a person might inherit or, or fail to inherit. In which case, all the wealth in the world would be worthless, for it was not legal tender in the world to come. Hence, his eager question to Jesus, the new teacher whom everyone was speaking about. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer Jesus gave didn't seem very radical or revolutionary. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Unlike most people, as illustrated by our interviews in Princess Street a few weeks ago, this man knew the Ten Commandments. And unlike most of us, he had kept them ever since he first became aware of them as a boy. He was not boasting or exaggerating when he said to Jesus, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Surely, such a moral young man will inherit eternal life, will qualify for heaven. That's what you'd expect. And that's what everyone who heard the conversation expected. Except Jesus. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sad because he was a man of great wealth. But you ask yourself, was this really fair? Was not Jesus adding more conditions for entering to heaven than God himself who gave the commandments? Hadn't this young man kept the Ten Commandments? No, for his wealth had become his God. He loved his wealth more than he loved God. And his God would tolerate no rivals. He had broken the first and greatest commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Rather than his wealth being a mark of God's honour and favour, as the Jews currently believed, it was in fact an obstacle which barred his way to heaven, as Jesus goes on to explain how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. No wonder his hearers are amazed and ask, well, if that's the case, who then can be saved? If he doesn't make it, what chance is there for any of us? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men and women is to keep the Ten Commandments. And nowhere is this universal human failure more evident than in the first commandment, which is our subject this evening. No other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. So I want us this evening to look more closely at what this commandment means. Which not only shows us what is impossible with men, 
but will, God willing, drive us to see there is only one solution, which is outside of ourselves, that which is possible with God. And then and only then will we be able and willing, able and willing, to keep the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. simply want to try and focus on three aspects of this commandment. And then we're going to respond in song and prayer before we go home. First of all, here in this commandment, we see a unique God. Strictly speaking, contradiction in terms, the unique God. The people of Israel to whom these commandments were given way back in Exodus, probably, scholars aren't sure, but 15, 1600 years before Christ, they lived in a world of many gods. They've spent generations, four centuries and more, living in Egypt, the mightiest empire of the day, in which all sorts of gods were worshipped, representing the heavenly bodies, animals, human incarnation in the form of their pharaohs. You can still see the temples and images, or the remains of them in Egypt today. But when these commandments were given, these gods were not just an archaeological relic, They were the reality for millions of people and they were the ruling gods in the ruling empire of the day. And the people of Israel living in Egypt were a slave race. This was the kind of religion that was enforced upon you. State religion. Imposed by the pharaohs who represented the gods. In the memorable words of Joseph in the amazing technical his dream coat, if you ever find yourself near Ramesses, you get down on your knees. But now these slaves had been emancipated. They were on a journey to their promised land. But they, or their children, for the journey took a lot longer than it should have done, would discover that Canaan was not only a land flowing with milk and honey, it was also a land overflowing with gods of every imaginable kind. The Canaanites offered multiple choice religion. And the great thing was you could tick all the boxes if you wanted. They were gods which promised wealth, or good harvest, or lots of children, or success in business, or anything you wanted. Add to this a heady spice of colourful ritual and sexual license, And the temptation became almost irresistible to join one of these religions. And it is into this multi-faith, polytheistic environment of the gods of Egypt and the gods of Canaan that God speaks to his people in Israel and says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. So, in this world of many gods, the people of Israel are to worship one God Not many. There's been a lot of debate among scholars, which I won't bore you with, because scholars tend to bore one another as well as other people, uh, as to whether this commandment actually teaches what is called monotheism, that is, the existence of only one God, rather than many gods. Uh, later on in the Bible, that is affirmed very strongly. For example, Psalm 96. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, For all the gods of the nations are just idols, but the Lord made the heavens. However, when this commandment is given to the people of Israel, its purpose is not so much theological, what the Israelites were to believe, 
but practical, what the Israelites were to do. In a world in which the existence of other gods seemed self-evident, they were to worship only the Lord their God. Now, I want to say to you that we face the same practical challenge today. Few, if any of us probably, believe in the gods of Egypt and Canaan. They have interest only to tourists and documentary makers. But we do worship other gods that take the place that God rightfully deserves in our lives. We would never claim that money, power, sex, ambition, family, or anything else were really gods. But nonetheless, they function as gods and are worshipped in our society. And to us, the one true God says, you shall have no other gods before me. But there is a second challenge concerning who God is in this commandment. The people of Israel are not only to worship the one God, not many, they're to worship the one Lord, not any. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. It was not as though, among all the other gods on offer in the world of that day, the people of Israel were told, you just pick one and stick with him, or her. No, they were to worship the one God, who is the Lord your God. The words translated God and gods are the same Hebrew word that's used of God in general. But the word Lord is the special name by which God revealed himself to the people of Israel. We need to go back a little while to Moses. You know Moses, the man who led the people out of Israel, was there receiving this law of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses had an interesting career. We don't have time to review it all, but you probably know he grew up as a prince in Egypt for his first 40 years of his life. And then he, he murdered someone, tried to start the Israelite Liberation Army on his own, and it all backfired and went wrong. And he cleared off to a place many miles from Egypt in the backside of the desert and became a shepherd for 40 years. Finally, at the age of 80, God called him and said, Moses, you could go back and set my people free. And Moses was pretty worried about this. And he said to God, look, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? Who is this God? What shall I say? Notice God's answer. Exodus 3 verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. The name by which God revealed himself is almost impossible to translate. I am who I am. The name God has chosen for himself is, expresses that he is the eternal ever-existent God, the one who was, who is, and who will be. This name became so sacred to the people of Israel that they didn't pronounce it out loud. So even today, no one is absolutely sure how you pronounce the name of the Lord in Hebrew. There are four letters that make it up. It's just a bit of interest, but it's quite important. Y-H-W-H, or something like that. Probably pronounced Yahweh. Uh, but in Old English, we pronounced it, because we didn't use a year, we used a je, we pronounced it Jehovah. And if you look at your Bible carefully, you, put, you may never have noticed this, but every time this name comes in our English Bibles, at least in this version, the word Lord is written 
in capital letters. Uh, Look at the first words of the Ten Commandments themselves. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord, your God. And do you see the word Lord there highlighted? It's in capital letters. Come on, be honest. How many people have never noticed that before? I'm just interested in this. Nobody's going to admit this. All right, okay, thank you. A few honest souls, all right. The unique God is not any old God. He is the Lord. The one who has revealed himself to a particular people in a particular way as the God, the unique God. Now, again, this has very important implications for us in our day. Here's a leading Old Testament scholar commenting on this, Chris Wright. He's preached here in Charlotte Chapel. This is what he says. It is commonly alleged that if there is only one God in reality, then what people worship must be or must represent that God. This is the kind of twisted logic that underlies the ideology of pluralism in the debate over world religions. Thus phrases like ultimate divine reality or the real or transcendent being are used and we're asked to accept that all religions, all concepts of God or denials of personal deities as well are equally valid in their portrayal of this mysterious, ineffable reality at the centre. You saw this after 9-11. Everybody jumped on the bag one and said, but hang on a minute, we all worship the same God. And he responds... Uh, Chris Wright, in what he wrote. Against this, one must first of all point out that the first commandment is inseparably linked to the prologue, what comes first. That is, it does not say, you must, not, you must acknowledge there is only one ultimate divine reality, however you choose to define or worship it. But Roderick says quite explicitly, I am Yahweh, the Lord. No other gods before my face. And then secondly, you have to turn to the New Testament to see this issue develops in a similar pluralistic religious environment. And the difference then is that God is portrayed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this of course was why Jesus aroused such enormous hostility. He was not killed because of the miracles that he did. He was killed because of the the claims he made for himself. He said he was and is the Lord, the Lord Jesus. On one occasion, in a debate with the Jewish religious leaders, he said, Abraham, who was the founder of the nation of Israel, the father of the nation, he said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jewish leaders were astounded. They said, you're not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. Now, notice what Jesus said in response. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, this is John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am Yahweh. They understand immediately what he's saying, although we may miss it. No wonder they picked up stones and tried to kill him. But he slipped away through the temple grounds, John tells us. Now, if the claims of Jesus about himself are not true, then every Christian here is guilty of breaking the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The great Hebrew confession, the Shema, is the Lord our Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6. But if they are true, if Jesus is Lord, then not to worship him is to break the first commandment. 
The Lord is a unique God, the unique God. He revealed himself to the people of Israel and has revealed himself fully and finally in his son Jesus. This then leads on to a second aspect of the first commandment. Not only a unique God, but secondly, an exclusive relationship. You shall have no other gods before me. If you've got the New International Version, it's good to learn all the little bits in these Bibles. You will see there is a little footnote, I think there is anyway, at the bottom there. I hope this is right, yes. If you look at verse 3 on page 78, you'll see it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And there's a little A after before. Then you look at the bottom of the page, and it says, or besides. The word can be translated either ways. The literal translation in the Hebrew language in which this is written is before my face. God says, you're to have no other gods before my face. Another writer, Alan Cole, comments, This slightly unusual phrase seems also to be used of taking a second wife while the first one is still alive. Such a use of breach of an exclusive personal relationship would help explain the meaning here. It then links with the description of God. Later on we'll see, God describes himself as a jealous God. It's a strange thing to say of God, but he's jealous. But once you see it in terms of what it's saying, it says, God has an exclusive relationship with his people. And if we're unfaithful to God, it hurts him deeply. If you look, it's an interesting exercise on the internet, if you look on the search engine for Ten Commandments, you get, I tried this and I stopped after about sort of 30 or 40 times, and I don't know how many thousand references there are to Ten Commandments. There's a huge amount of criticism on the internet of the Ten Commandments by various people. One of the main claims against them is that the God of the Bible is portrayed as some kind of cosmic bully who demands the craven obedience of his followers, or else. But this is not the God described in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The Ten Commandments are not addressed to everyone, they're addressed to God's own people. The Lord says to them, I am the Lord, the one who's rescued you. The Lord is their saviour. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You belong to me. I rescued you. I own you, but I've brought you into this relationship with myself. And now I want you to live the best possible life. Here are the maker's instructions for a happy nation and a happy people. These are my ten commandments. The gods of Egypt, representing state religion, enforce worship. The gods of Canaan, representing market religion, offered inducements to those who would follow them. But the God of Israel appeals for obedience on, on the part of his people because he's redeemed them, brought them back from slavery in Egypt, and set them free, so that we are free to worship him and obey his commands. And therefore, our response to these commands is a grateful response. We just sang it, Lord, accept the sacrifice of a grateful heart. And the first response that God should expect of us, therefore, is our undivided allegiance to him. One writer suggests the first commandment could be translated, you shall have no other gods as rivals to me. So if you think God's demands are unreasonable, this exclusive relationship, no other gods, then I need to ask you, do you really belong to God? Has he rescued you and saved you? 
You see, if I said to, I think it's a good illustration. If I said to one of the young people here, look, I don't think you should have any other girlfriends other than that one there. The young man might say, well, why? I'd like to have lots of different girlfriends. But if that young man comes to me in Charlotte Chapel one day and he stands down on that platform in front of me with a nice young lady who's dressed in a nice white dress with a veil and bridesmaids and everybody on either side. And I say to him, will you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? To have and to hold from this day forth, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. And forsaking all other, keep yourself only unto her for as long as you both shall live. And he says, I will. Then she has the perfect right to expect, and I do as the pastor if I see him doing something out of order, to say to him, that is wrong. You committed yourself to an exclusive relationship with your wife, and vice versa. Significantly, if you read the Bible right through, Marriage is one of the key pictures that describes the relationship of God with his people right through the Old Testament and into the New Testament as well. And the great tragedy that the prophets of Israel, when they spoke to the people of Israel and called them back to God, you know what they accused them of? Adultery. They said, you've prostituted yourselves with other gods. You've turned from the one true God who has loved you and rescued you. If you want a book to read about this in the Bible, read the book of Hosea which is a kind of, it actually happened in his own life, his own wife was unfaithful to him, and it was used by God as a picture of what Israel was doing to their God. The people of Israel, guilty of spiritual adultery. And the Lord is deeply hurt by the way they've treated him. See, when we break God's commandments, it's not like, as I said last time in the introduction, it's not like breaking some impersonal law. I told you about how I got done for speeding. You know, when, when, I, when I got done for speeding in Aberdeen, the chief constable wrote his letter to me. He wasn't heartbroken that I'd done this. He was probably pleased to get 60 quid, for, you know, towards his coffers. But I tell you this, when we're unfaithful to God, it hurts him deeply. For he's a jealous God. He wants your exclusive allegiance to him. Not only because it's the best thing for you, but because he loves you. He expects that of you. And so the Old Testament, if you take this theme right through, it, through the prophets, God promises that he will rescue his wayward people. He will send a saviour who will forgive them. Who will bring them back to himself. And restore the broken relationship with God the Father. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's why God sent his Son into the world, to bring back a people to himself, to rescue us. And Jesus is that exclusive way to God the Father. If you're not a Christian here this evening, you're estranged from God, the God who made you, the God who loves you, in rebellion against him. And the good news is this, God didn't turn his back on you and say, you've made a mess of it, that's you finished. God sent his son into the world to bring you back to himself, to reconcile you, to bring you into his family, to make this child. And when he does that, he expects your exclusive allegiance, your undivided allegiance to him. 
You put your faith in Christ. We learnt when we were at Sunday school, those of us who were younger, that faith means forsaking, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all I trust or take him. You can't trust Christ and lots of other gods. You trust him as the one true way to God and you're reconciled, brought back to God. Now this leads to the third and final aspect of the commandment, a unique God, an exclusive relationship. Finally, a personal response. You shall have no other gods before me. As we've seen, this is addressed to those who've been redeemed. Those who now belong to God, first the people of Israel, and then to every Christian. It demands a personal response from those who've been redeemed. Peter, in his first letter, writes to Christians and he says, remember that you've been redeemed, not with, not with things that wear out, like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We no longer belong to ourselves, but to the one who paid the price for our rescue. The word you, used here in, in the commandment, is a singular the commandment is given to the people of God through a redeemed community, but it must be embraced by every individual in the community. It demands a personal response from every individual. So what is our response then? It is to offer our lives in worship to God and not to serve other gods. Now this doesn't mean some vague spiritual exercise. It's rooted in the New Testament in every aspect of our lives. You shall have no other gods before my face. If it's before God's face, then God who sees everything demands that every area of our life comes under his lordship. So, for example, if you were here last year, you remember studying this. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians living in the city of Corinth, a place filled with idols. And the religion was all tied up with sex. And so he says to them, flee from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Why? Well, he roots it in the language of worship. The next two verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It's easy in church, you know, to think that we are truly worshipping God alone and even to promise to do so in the emotion of the moment. As you know, well, you may have noticed anyway, that we, often, we usually try and pick songs and hymns that reflect the theme of what we're speaking about and what our, our focus is for the particular service. And, and sometimes it's very hard to find songs that suit a particular theme. Listen, if you take this book, Mission Praise, I would imagine that, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but I would imagine that at least three quarters of the thousand songs fit into our theme this evening. Certainly at least a half, I'm exaggerating. Somebody will come back and count them this week and tell me, Pastor, it's only 38.5%. But anyway, a lot of them. And there's nothing wrong with them. They're great songs. I enjoy them as much as anyone else. But the challenge is whether our lives tally with what we sing. If not, it's hypocrisy. And we need to confess it, seek God's forgiveness and put it right and live our lives in obedience to God, responding to his grace by putting him first in every area of our lives. I was given another book this week, very kindly, uh, on the Ten Commandments, written by David Searle, who is recently retired as the warden of Rutherford House here in Edinburgh. I recommend it to you. 
Um, it's called, And Then There Were Nine, and you need to read the book to discover why and then there were nine, but those who are perceptive will know what he's talking about, and we'll come to it in a few weeks' time. And I was challenged reading it. He gives three tests to discover what comes first in your life. And let me pass them on to you and recommend you get a copy of the book. Uh, and I'll just read what he says. The first test, he says, is the money test. This is what he writes. Jot down the main items of your monthly or annual spending. After you've accounted for essentials of life, such as rent or mortgage, food, heat and clothing, see how you spend the rest. For example, compare how much you spend on holidays each year with what you give to the Lord's work. Because how we spend our money will tell us very accurately who or what is our God. He's absolutely spot on. I'm just amazed sometimes at what we spend on other things. And in terms of our giving to God, we look for the loose change in our pocket. I'm speaking to those of you who are Christians. Some of you all know that the origin folk, we hired the Usher Hall for a, a special event uh, at the road there. And it was most of Christians who came. We filled it with 2,000 people and we said, we're not going to make any charge this evening. But the, we suggest if you, if you were all to give four pounds each, this is a whole evening's program in the Usher Hall, we would meet our budget. This is 2,000 mostly Christians. We didn't meet the budget. People put a couple of quid in things. That's good enough. They go out next week and they spend... £20 on a carry-out. Or £25 to watch a football team. I won't comment on the wisdom of that, but... uh, but This is practical living. You should be embarrassed by that, really. The second test he gives is the thought test. This is a good one. What is your waking thought and what is your last thought at night? Or if you have a couple of hours alone with yourself and nothing urgent to do, what do you think about and what do you plan? In other words, what do you worship? We are not what we think we are, what we think we are. Think about that for a minute, all right? We are not what we think we are, what we think we are. Our religion is what we do with our solitariness. Thought about that this morning in Jesus praying in the solitary place. Thirdly, the time test. Do the same test on your time as your money, and thought life. See how you allocate spare time. Then collate the results of all three tests. And this is what he says. Discover fairly accurately some very personal facts about yourself. Discover the identity of the God enthroned in your life. Discover the identity of the God enthroned in your life. The surprising thing is that our God, the one and only true God, does not coerce us into obeying his commandments. He does not pick us upside down and shake us so that all our money falls out into the offering plate. Which he could easily do. But he says in the words of his son, if you love me, keep my command. The test of our love for Christ is seen in our obedience to him. And even more surprisingly and wonderfully, when we disobey his commands and go our own way, worshipping other idols, he seeks us out calls us back to himself. And I simply want to say this evening, as this has challenged me studying it, I trust it's challenged you. You shall have no other gods before me. God is speaking to you about this. Great, we're going to sing a couple of songs in response in a moment. But let's do so and ask God that the songs might match 
the reality in our lives tomorrow morning, the week that lies ahead. We began with a young man, didn't we? Wealthy, influential, and moral, who went to say, way sad because the demands of Jesus were too great. And maybe you aren't a Christian this evening, and all you've heard has made you think, there's no way I'm going to become a Christian. It's a lot more costly than I ever realized. Is it worth it? Good question. Would you not be worth, better off worshipping other gods, running your own life? There's another young man in the Bible that's very similar to the first one. Highly influential, very moral, and intellectually brilliant. The goal in his life was to serve God. And what really bugged him was when other people failed to worship the true God and worship false gods. And so when a group of people claiming that Jesus of Nazareth was God came on the scene, he saw it as his religious duty to stamp them out ruthlessly because he knew he was doing God's will. Or thought he did. On one of his trips to hunt out and arrest these followers of Jesus, he was struck down at noon by a bright light and a voice from heaven said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he recognized who it was and he said, Who are you, Yahweh? Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that point on, Saul the persecutor became Paul the apostle or messenger of Jesus Christ. It cost him everything. Status, wealth, health. Was it worth it? 25 years later, 25 incredibly hard years of privation on the road in the service of Jesus, he wrote this. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is my faith. I want to know Christ the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Was it worth it? Absolutely, says Paul. There's nothing greater than knowing Christ, following Christ. See, the voice says, Hi, don't let go of your life. You never know what might happen. God says, let go of your life. No, you don't know what will happen, but I know, and you can trust me. One young man went away sad, gaining the world, but he lost his soul. The other became a follower of Jesus, losing his life, but gaining his soul. And this evening, each one of us is faced with a choice. A response to God's word, his command, you shall have no other gods before me. Let's respond to that. We're going to sing a song, and then Phil Doggett is going